This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave, a 3RRR film criticism show. And a big thank you to Phoebe Squared for the past three hours of excellent music on maps. Fee will be back next Monday at 4pm to do it all again. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Cerise Howard, Alexandra Heller, Nicholas, and a person who has been a frequent special guest host with us, uh, Emma Westwood. You're with us again tonight, but in your official capacity as a Plato's Cave team member. You are one of us. It's wonderful. Isn't that exciting? (laughs) Isn't that exciting? I'm waiting for the hazing. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what that's going to be. That's going to be I the next <laughs> 60 minutes of discussion where we ask you very <laughs> okay. awkward questions that you haven't prepared for at all and change the, the films that we discuss. <laughs> but Emma, look, thank you so much for being part of the team. Uh, big thank you to Beck Hornsby and all the members of the Triple R Program Advisory Group who gave us the thumbs up and says, yes, Emma works beautifully with the rest of us. So, right. um, yeah, don't let us down. Um, <laughs> Don't pressure, Emma. Don't mess it up. Before I go any further, I should also thank Christos Chalkis for doing an excellent job on the show last week, filling in, and Carl Chapman, who came on to to, to push all the buttons behind the desk. Uh, I I joke about this every time, but it's wonderful hearing people who know how to do their job properly. I I took notes. I hope I've learned a bit. (laughs) Now, on tonight's show, we're going to look at the new film by the stylish Danish provocateur Nicholas Vinding Refn. The Neon Demon. We're also going to take a look at the personal essay film by multimedia artist Laurie Anderson, The Heart of a Dog. But first, Cafe Society is the new film by writer-director Woody Allen. It's his 47th film as director during a filmmaking career that has now gone on for half a century. It's also the second 2016 film set during the classical Hollywood era that features a large ensemble cast and is um, helmed by a distinctively Jewish-American auteur after Hal Caesar by the Coen brothers, which we discussed earlier this year. But back to Cafe Society. This is set during the 1930s. It's about a naive young man named Bobby, played by Jesse Eisenberg, who leaves the family home in New York City to work for his uncle Phil a highly successful and influential talent agent played by Steve Carell. Bobby soon finds himself falling for his uncle's secretary, Vonnie, played by Kristen Stewart. Blake Lively and Parker Posey also feature in the cast. Emma, I think this was one of the films that you and I were most keen to discuss on the show tonight. So why don't you kick us off? Tell us what did you think of Cafe Society? Well, I'll start with a negative, which I think it's probably... um it's a little light on the storyline, but I think that's become a, a, a Woody Allen trope uh, these days. And I, I had the feeling with this with this film, it's it's like Woody Allen has created his own genre, the Woody Allen genre. And it's the titles come up, the title font that you recognise, Windsor, Windsor. Mm. It's a beautiful font. He's used it since Annie Hall. There you go. I love the Windsor it's, font. It's gorgeous. It's the music, font. check the jazz music. Yep. The Woody Allen narration, which we haven't had for a while, but it's nice to see it back. Um, so it just felt so Woody Allen. It wasn't a super hilarious film. It had nice little quips in terms of the uh, the screenplay and the dialogue. Uh, Steve Carell, you probably expect something that's a little bit funnier if you've got Steve Carell, which um, it wasn't. But what I felt was with this film, having Vittorio Storaro... Mm. 
as a cinematographer. <laughs> that was see my, Alex yeah, yeah, yeah. nodding. That was one of my notes too. My Boy, God. do you notice the difference. My God, yes. this film, and it was literally, the film was golden. It was about the golden age of Hollywood and it was a golden movie. And I just found that I fell into it and I just wanted to stay with it and just looking at the the styling of the characters um it was just absolutely sublime and i believe it's woody allen's first digital film as well digital film do you like that um <laughs> film shot digitally film shot yeah. digitally um which goes to show that uh digital cinema in the hands of a master can be just as good as um, film cinema because it was just so beautiful. That's one of the first things I noticed too was how good the film looked because Woody Allen films don't often look very good. Often it feels like the cinematographer just points the camera and shoots. Although I think when we discussed Blue Jasmine way back in the day, those of us on the show then talked about how sophisticated the use of colour and mise-en-scene was actually in that film, but it wasn't overt, where this one looks like a beautiful film, like it's much nicer looking than a Woody Allen film. Absolutely. And I thought the acting was better than usual too. I find Woody Allen films can get a bit too... Uh, almost stagey and overtly talky, which is kind of part of the Woody Allen genre, and I like it a lot of the time. But um, when it doesn't work, it's really horribly clunky. So I thought it worked a lot better in, in this film. And look, I, I, I've i never fallen out of favour with his films, that there's a lot I can really easily write off. But, you know, looking at the films in the past ten years, I, I liked Irrational Man. I thought Blue Jasmine was incredible. I really liked Paris, Manhattan. No, sorry, that's that's um, a film he acted in. I really liked Midnight in, in Paris. Um, so I'm still sort of on side with him. Yeah. I, I found this film was a bit light and it began with a lot of promise. My heart really sank when I realised it was just going to be a love triangle story. I thought there was so much potential to do more with that. And then by the time we moved to the third act and they actually changed location quite significantly in the film, I thought there was a new burst of energy. But that energy then tapered off again. Yep. yep. I found this really I found this a really pleasant, enjoyable film, but I did feel sort of an absence for what I thought could be a better film. Yeah. Exactly. I think I am uh, feel exactly the same as you, Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for doing talking about the storyline in that way. That was great. I think that also it's worthwhile saying to people that uh, Victoria, Victoria Storaro actually uh, shot Apocalypse Now, The Last Emperor, Dick Tracy, Last Tango in Paris, among a few of his films, he's just Bertolucci's to give an main, idea. He's Bertolucci's main cinematographer. Yeah, I did a bunch yeah. with Coppola. Carlos Soro, the Spanish filmmaker who I just adore, Peppermint Frappe. Don't know if he did Peppermint Frappe. Did a bunch uh, of Giallo as well. Yeah, uh, uh, with Argento with too. Um, was it Bird with Crystal Yeah, Bridge, yeah, yeah, it? one of the yeah. early Argento ones. Mm. Are we talking um, about the cinematographer? Yep. Yes. 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 So who and must be quite elderly now and then? He's had a long career. Baby. He interestingly did, um, interesting, interesting if you're me, he, well, he's, he's not really done anything really great for quite a while. It's, he sort of fell off the radar a little bit, but he did, um, the notorious Ishtar that Elaine May oh, filmed. Yes. <laughs> and one of my highlights of this film, aside from Storaro, is Ginny Berlin, who was just exquisite, who is Elaine May's daughter. She played Jesse Eisenberg's mother, and I love Jeannie Berlin. Mm. I think she's just gorgeous. Oh my god! I yeah, didn't, I didn't make um, that connection. No, That's no, fantastic. No. And she is great. She's just exquisite. Yeah. I mean, she looks like her mum. She's basically her mum, and and her mum, of course, is in the new series with Miley Cyrus, the new Woody Allen series. I can't remember what it's oh, called. Crisis in Sixteen. S- yeah. Yes, the so, Amazon TV one, which yeah, is yeah, yeah. The, apparently not the, great. The May the May Berlin connection is happening here which pleases me next to the Storaro. <laughs> I look, I, I like the early funny ones. Um, Woody <laughs> Allen films were my 
I learnt cinema through early Woody Allen films, through the early funny ones. I still think of Sweet and Lowdown as a new Woody Allen film. So I just, I just haven't really made the connection. I think with this, this sort of later era. And I mean, yeah, this I liked some of the performances. I, I mean, Kristen Stewart. What? How do we even begin to talk about the year of that woman's career? I mean, it's just extraordinary the work. So certain women, personal shopper. Yep. I mean, she's just. Well, I mean, she amazing. And for she's me, perfect she really started to get attention last year with the Clouds of Sils Maria, which mm. I thought was astonishing. Um, I, I think I'm on record as saying I always liked her, yeah, and I me always too. liked Robert Patterson as well. I was yep. always a big. I can't stand the Twilight films, but I think these two young performers are going to do great things, and yep. I'm glad that everybody else has caught up with me on no, her at I, least. I, I, I thought <laughs> she was. I have nothing to say positive about the Twilight films, but I thought that she she had a really magical blankness that I think was quite deliberate mm. and I think a lot of people mistook as bad acting but I, um, Clive Owen I think has done it at points of his career he's the only other contemporary actor I can think of who does this kind of withdrawn presence that she can do but she's really moved beyond that and I think the films that she's done this year in particular are just extraordinary. Jesse Eisenberg he's okay but I just why do guys in Woody, it's like the Kenneth Branner and celebrity just because you're in a guy the protagonist in a Woody Allen film you don't have to be Woody Allen. But do you think that Woody um, Allen might direct him? That no way? He, he's actually said the opposite. Has he? So he, he told Kenneth Branner yeah. very clearly not to do that in celebrity and then Branner oh. turned up and had this whole kind of shtick prepared and he was like well this is how you want to do it. I think Branner in Celebrity yeah. was the all time low in terms oh. of non Woody Allen actors doing yeah. Woody Allen. I thought Eisenberg was a bit he's, better in this. Yeah no he's definitely not the Branner level. I'm but a bit over Jesse Eisenberg shtick as well. It's yeah. the same thing we've seen him doing every single film. I liked him in the David Foster Wallace He was film. great that. was where that, he yes. really and I didn't mind him in the double the Richard Ayoade film but I'm digressing. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I really didn't like the film at all. Yeah. It bored me stupid. and um, I, I found it pretty tedious. Yeah, and, yeah. and witless. Um, I, 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 found, I found it interminable. I thought, here's a lovely setup. <laughs> so you'd think this whole film would be so invested in Hollywood lore, and instead, the celebrities of the period, it's not really even in, uh, evoking. I just throw away names that Steve Carell throws as part of his dialogue, and it's just uh, apropos of nothing of significance whatsoever. It doesn't really help immerse the viewer in uh, a sense of the time and place. I didn't really feel that this was Hollywood, no matter how gorgeously yellow it all was. And I, I do recall we were talking about some film last week. What was it that was so beautiful in its yellows? Do you recall we had this... What uh, did we even talk about last I don't week? even remember. George's <laughs> cinema. Oh, uh, Julieta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The, Al- Almodovar. There has to be a Crayola colour called yeah. Almodovar yellow. That's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> but, but something in this film, yeah, all that really... Uh, sort of hi- hyper sun-kissed cinematography, especially the the Hollywood set stuff. It is gorgeous, but it, for me, it still didn't. It wasn't anywhere near enough because I didn't get any chuckles. Mm. Expecting some chuckles, even Alan's narration sounded phoned in. Really, it was again there were no real gags in it. I didn't like the narration actually. I. And, and yeah. much of what was there played for laughs was really quite stereotypical, a Jewish um, shtick. And it just felt really flat with me, aside from one line that I, I'm sure... Woody Allen film. Yeah, I, know, I know, but it really... It was all just too very familiar. I enjoyed the little gangster subplot. So, uh, this whole si- element with uh, Jesse Eisenberg's character's brother, Ben, and the stuff of his uh, becoming a gangster and shown in flashback was quite nicely done and stylish. Mm. 
Uh, and there was definitely a little bit of cinematographic flair there. You definitely sensed somebody else having a bit of a say in what's going on in the <laughs> film because the camera was doing some little manoeuvres that I'm not accustomed to seeing in Alan's films. Yeah. But really, this whole thing left me really deathly cold. And um, no amount of lovely yellow will make this film better <laughs> in my memory. Just, not uh, even Blake Lively in that beautiful red dress. I thought she was awful. Did you? I thought she was Awful. Really? <laughs> really? No, I, I, oh, I didn't felt my shoulders slump when she turned up. It was just, oh, oh okay. Token. I don't, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's a he didn't give He didn't give her much to do, but I did uh, think she did it well, what she had. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. I, I weirdly think I agree with everybody here. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I mean, I, I think its biggest thing is that it is boring and there was a patch in the middle where I, I was bored and that's what I was saying about my disappointment, that I thought there was going to be more to this film and it becomes a fairly tedious love triangle story. And, yeah, when the gangster stuff starts becoming more prominent, I got excited again and then that kind of petered out. It left me on a lovely note of melancholic longing, though. I mean, the, the, the final scene had its desired effect on me at least. So, you know, I, I gave it a few points for that. But I, I think this is a middle-of-the-road Alan film, not one of the great ones. It's utterly pedestrian. I would love that to be the tagline on the poster. Uh, utterly pedestrian in the loveliest way possible. <laughs> wow. Beautifully, <laughs> exquisitely pedestrian. Yeah. Yeah, transcendentally pedestrian. <laughs> <laughs> Triple R. Neon Demon is the latest film by Danish filmmaker Nicholas Winding Refn, who after films such as the Pusher Trilogy, Bronson, Drive and Only God Forgives is now very much established as a highly stylish filmmaker who likes to push buttons and divide audiences. The Neon Demon is his first film with a female protagonist and features women in key roles in the supporting cast and behind the scenes. Refn co-wrote the film with two women and his cinematographer was the Argentinian director of photography, Natasha Breyer, whose previous work included shooting the 2014 Australian film The Rover. The Neon Demon is a dark fairy tale, a horror film, a psychological thriller and a satire on the fashion industry. It is about 16-year-old Jessie, played by Elle Fanning, an aspiring model who has just moved to Los Angeles, hoping to make it big. The rest of the cast includes Gina Malone, Abby Lee, Christina Hendricks and Keanu Reeves. Sirius, I think it's safe to say you were the one most taken by this film. I'm just trying to read read the room. Is it safe to say that? I don't know. I mean, I was uh, taken by aspects of it, certainly. I've got to cast my mind back because it was during Myth that I saw it. Yes, likewise. I mean, sure, it's pretty. Um, I, I'm, I'm almost tempted, rather than really going into any depth on it, just to throw the name Argento into the mix to <laughs> see if I can get it. Is this... <laughs> <laughs> Alex is going to smash a bottle. I, while we were playing that song, just to explain, I did threaten to yellow card anybody that compared this film to Argento. So Cerise is cruising from bruising. Oh. I thought this film reminded me of Suspiria, Alex. Oh I think God, there was, there's a scene Cordwell. where there's a red light and that, that, that's, gonna... that's all I've got. It's very Luciano Tavoli, the cinematography throughout. <laughs> Discuss, Alex. <laughs> Are we alluding to the fact that's a rather lazy comparison? Love... That there's, there's yes. more? Yes. Yeah. Um, and Thomas, I believe that you experience this often with David Lynch, this idea that that um, Dario Argento and David Lynch are somehow ground zero yeah. for these kind of uh, re- ground zero reference points. Yep. Um, yeah, look, I, I have a lot to say. I mean, Mario Bava's uh, Blood and Black Lace from the opening credits of this film, it's the same colour palette. This film is a love letter to Blood and Black Lace. 
a giallo film from 1964 set in the fashion industry. I think it's also um, really nodding its head, uh, tipping its hat a lot to Sergio Martino's All the Colours of the Dark. I have a lot to say about and this film. <laughs> Jodorowsky as well, surely. Oh, absolutely. Who he's a huge... He's a very yeah. vocal fan of, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a lot of influences, but to me, just, I mean, Suspiria, it's like Argento didn't invent that colour palette in horror. He didn't invent that style of uh, vignette, mm. that kind of little horror vignette. He, he you know, Ricardo Freda, he's working on a legacy one that Refn is very, very aware of. There's another very La La Land influence here too that I think uh, is, is worth mentioning because there's a, a, a bit of occultism that this film is steeped in and there's a whole lot of Kenneth anger mm. in this film for mine and that includes the colour palette too and anger was really going there with films like Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome and these extremely lurid exercises in... That ritualism. Uh, yeah, ritual, yeah. and and but also just gorgeousness. I mean, those yeah. films are exquisite when he really let rip. Uh, this this over aestheticization of just everything. Even when this film opens and we're getting a novice photographer shooting uh, the girl that we're going to get to know in the course of the film, uh, even that is stylized to exactly the same ludicrous over-the-top degree is everything that follows it when she starts working with professional hip groovy photographer jack who is of course going to turn out to be a maniac because everyone's going to be a maniac because la la land is a land of maniacs and and moida and necrophilia and all the all the good stuff really that is um what we look for in films that are so heavily influenced by everyone we've already name dropped <laughs> i think this is a fun and funny film i don't think it's a major i, I like refin a lot i realize that particularly on social media hating on Refn has reached an almost meme level. Like, it's kind of cool to be a hater. Although I almost he, said he does provoke people. I mean, yeah. he's at, and I don't... I, I think that he's... He has a almost Sam Peckinpah degree of genuinely not giving a crap what people think. And I really admire that, that he just makes the films that he wants to make. I think this is fun and funny. I think it's a transitional film. I don't think it's a major Refn film. Um, I still argue very strongly that his, his great work is Only only God Forgives. And I think that's going to be his bring with the head of Alfredo Garcia. I think 20 years from now, people are going to be, wow, that film is the one. I thought this was fun and funny. I um, Abby Lee, I could just talk endlessly about Abby Lee. You read interviews about her making this film and her experience uh, in the fashion industry and there are scenes in this movie that she has described as being documentary-like. There's an extraordinary scene, it's not a spoiler, but there's a, a whole bunch of models are auditioning for a catwalk show and they're in their underwear with no makeup, piggy tails, and it's a silence. It Refn uses silence so well. And Abby Lee has said that's what it's like. It's just, you know, you basically if you're a model, you get, you know, you virtually just get, they're going to shoot you when you turn 29. It's, it's over. And I think it's, um, this idea of meat is really powerful and potent and funny in this film. Uh, reference a, a filmmaker who, and I almost put this in the intro, but it sounded a bit too snarky and facetious, so I'll just sneak it in now. <laughs> but but I, th I think it's become very uh, fashionable to embrace him. It's become very fashionable to completely dismiss him yeah. as well. He's really kind of the, the, the divided people. And I am overall a fan, even though I don't think this is one of his better films. Uh, but I just want to quickly mention Abby Lee is sensational in this. She does a lip twitch in this film, like it's a fraction of a second and it's one of the funniest <laughs> things I've seen in film. It's one of the best reactions ever. Yeah. She's incredible. Between this, this minimalist perfection. Between this twitch. and... Um, and they're both relatively minor roles in, in terms of screen time, but between this and Fury Road, she's won my heart. Church of Abbey Lee, I'm in. She's, yeah. a, she's a woman drawn to angry roles, and I love it. Yeah, I like... Look, my thing with this film is... 
I was so on board with this film for a good part of its running time. It was sort of a bit of... It had a bit of a Mulholland Drive vibe to it and it's kind of dreamlike young innocent girl in this strange world. It had a bit of repulsion going on as well where you're increasingly not too sure whether what she's experiencing is really happening or if it's the... If it's, you know, her, her fears and demons manifesting in, in, in real form. And then about maybe 30 or 40 minutes before the end... I thought this film squandered all goodwill and, and potential and I got really irritated with it. I, I felt it just ended up doing a series of... Uh, presenting a series of kind of shock tactics to try to... It felt juvenile. It felt like, this is going to really disturb the audience. Ha, ha, ha. It, it felt like a, a film a 15-year-old boy would, would make or a stoner would make saying, it's really fucked up, yeah. man. I, it got like that I for me. That and was, I, I thought that was its sense of humour. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was I'm genuinely hilarious. Oh, I, like, I, it was just such a, like, it was almost like carry on reffing. Like, it's just <laughs> yeah. like, I mean, I don't want to give away spoilers, but it was so over the top and so ridiculous. And I... It's but like, I felt there was a radical change of mood. Yeah. I was so with it until it went there, and I thought, what a shame. There's this a very building key to something moment better. in the plot where something very unexpected, I think, happens. Um, yes. And it's, it's, it's something, and I, I'm very careful not to give away a spoiler here. It is one of my great loves in horror when filmmakers do it. I think it's very funny. Yeah. Um, I think it has a long history, and I'm careful not to refer to other films that do it, but there's a very famous film from 1960 that does the same thing. Hint, hint. Yeah, I, um, I, I've got you. Yep. Yeah, like, it's, I just think it's hilarious. I just thought the last sort of 20 minutes of this film were, like, like fire-slapping funny. Like, yeah. I, I just thought it was so hilarious. I did too. I, I think that with um, Drive and Neon Demon and Only God Forgives, he's kind of set a real tone in terms of his filmmaking that's different to... Other reffin films. I think those three do feel quite like a a trilogy yeah, of some very sort. Very much so. Yeah, and the Cliff int- Martinez score certainly contributes to that oh, too. Oh, and that score is just mm. amazing. And the the actual photographic sequences, where um, interestingly, you never see her photographs. Did you notice that? Mm. You never actually see the photographs. Mm. You just see the photographs being taken. But uh, those sequences were almost like Wonderland jewelry box kind of fairy tale. You know, the tinsels being thrown in the air, it's all so, so pretty and, you know, so that kind of whimsy with cruelty and absolute mean girls nastiness. There's a scene so in, a, in a toilet very early on, in a bathroom yeah. early on in the film. I love the script in this and you can really tell... Um, Polly Stenham, she she did that play, That Face. Mm. She was like 19 years old. I mean, you can really... And I, I, I like that he was honest enough to say, you know what, I'm really crap at writing women, so I'm going to get people that are not crap at writing women. I think that that both, scene... Both the co-writers are young yeah. women with backgrounds in theatre. Yep. Um, that scene, and I love how he uses silence. Mm. Um, the music drops out. To me, the lack of music is just as powerful in this film as the, the moments that he chooses yeah. to really ramp it up. I don't think there's a filmmaker that uses space quite like he does. Um, there's a lot of... Um, Only God forg- Forgives to me was the ultimate in that, that he has these huge open spaces and then very intense closed spaces and very little in between and it's really disorienting. Yeah. I love it. I just... I love I loved Only God Forgives as well. I'm the same as you. I but think people in general didn't really... No, that, that didn't I, go so well. <laughs> I wasn't a fan. Because I, I got yeah. bored with Only God Forgives. Really? I found it just a little bit self-indulgent. I think it's a yeah. film that will age well. I think that yeah. Drive and will date really badly and I think Drive's probably the most popular one but yes. I, to me that's the lesser of the three. Yeah, so I, that's I that's would, my favourite. <laughs> I, I really don't... I think that I think these are transitional films. I do think that they work as a kind of trilogy. Yeah. Um, and they all have that pacing, like you said, yeah. that use of space and silence. It's, it's and, space, yeah. ritual, 
Like that's his thing. And I think the thing is that he tries to grab you with colour, but I don't think that that's his superpower. I think it's it's space and ritual. He's really. It's probably it it goes to show that the superficiality of the the film in terms of the the fashion and uh, the beauty of models and everything. uh, It's I find it's a very similar film to Only God Forgives, but maybe God Only God Forgives is a bit uglier. I mean, both of them are ugly thematically, but in terms of the look of it, there's it goes to show that looking at pretty girls and stylized sets goes a long way. That people are going to like that more. I gave a shout out on our Myth show to a wonderful, wonderful young woman called Natalie who worked on the Miff Critics Campus this year and she pointed out to me, I, I so want to take props for this point of comparison myself and I just can't. <laughs> Natalie is amazing. There is an incredible film from 2012 called uh, Helter Skelter, a Japanese film by a woman called Mika Ninagawa. Um, I think it's on YouTube but without subtitles, but she's a fashion photographer who made a film very similar to this. It's worth checking out. It's really, if you... Even if you didn't like Neon Demon, but you were kind of fascinated by the world it presented, Helter Skelter is just essential. I think Helter Skelter is a much better film, just full stop. Um, I think uh, with Neon Demon, it was for me, it was a a bit of a creeper, to be totally honest. I came out of it, the myth screening I saw it in was hot and I was late. I missed the about the first two minutes and Get it um, together, Emma. I know and then I had to walk so far to my car it was 11 30 at night but the more I thought about it and um I saw it a second time actually it 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 really I got to love it it's what, probably one of my favorite films of this year to be totally honest um I there's so much that keeps on coming out of it like the the cast is really really good watching it a second time I kept on thinking and you do get a lot of, out of it a second time it's a good second watcher um I thought is Jessie really that beautiful in the way that they talked about her I mean I didn't and I thought that was probably a point of the film as well she's so I, I think she woman. embodies what was very fashionable. It, or probably still is very fashionable, which is that waif bordering on androgynous kind of yeah. very... And very young. I mean, she looks incredibly disturbingly young. She does, yes. And yes. I think that he's very much in at the moment and just so thin and almost formless. So I think that she does embody what is very popular in fashion right now, as well as looking just so so innocent and almost... I know, she's a cross between an alien and an angel. Yeah. I mean, there is something quite ephemeral about her that's in this a, film. It's so distant and cold, mm. I think, all of that. And I love yeah. that in the dialogue and that there is something so withdrawn about this film. So you've got this really aggressive colour palette. There's so much that's aggressive about it but then so much that's held back. Yes, I yes. love that tension. It, I just grown, think it, it has grown in my estimation since I saw it. Like yeah. I, I still feel that disappointment that I thought it was going to be a different kind of film and that's when as a critic you've got to look at yourself and say, well that that's my baggage. Yeah. I, yeah. I can't I can't criticise a film because it didn't become the thing I wanted it to be personally. The more I think about this film, the more it sat with me and the more I researched it, because I had to do a bunch of research for it last week. Um, How was that, Thomas? I, I, got, to, I got to do a, a Skype interview with uh, Nicholas Windy oh, Reffin. I did. Oh. I'll just, hang on, I'll just drop something. <laughs> <laughs> Pick that name up. That's, <laughs> that's a gag I stole from Phoebe Squared, actually, if she's listening. Um, Shout out, Phoebe. Yes, but the more I read about it, the more I thought about it, the more I really liked it. And there's a really cheeky sense of humour behind it yeah, as well. I like, and, and, I, and that's what Refn often does. And I like him. I've been lucky enough to interview him a couple of times. And he's one of these people with a reputation for being difficult. And both times I've spoken to him, he's been charming, he's been funny, he's been so generous with how freely he talks about his process and his films. 
So um, maybe that's influenced me liking the film a bit more as well. <laughs> I just I love that he does what he wants to do, even if it doesn't work for me. I just love that he really he just doesn't care. Like he just is doing his own thing. Well, yeah, he made this on a tiny budget. This was I actually a very that. low budget film. Yeah. It, looked, it doesn't I think it's feel beautiful. like that. I mean, it doesn't feel low no. budget. It I just one like of my favourite um, criticisms of this film was that it looked like a Vogue. Or it looks like a Chanel ad. It's like, hmm, really? <laughs> I wonder why that was. Yeah, like, hmm, what a coincidence! That's exactly like. what it should be. But uh, I just, um, in terms of the cast as well, um, Keanu Reeves was fantastic. He was great. I loved bad Keanu Reeves, like in The Gift. Uh, Sam Raimi's, Raimi's The Gift. I think that was the first time he was really a bad Keanu. And also Carl Glusman, who played Dean, her sort of. Uh, uh, the lover that never was the oh, guy that was hanging around the nice now, guy photographer yeah, yeah he was um the lead in Gaspar Noé's love that was him no way yes, yes. good googling westwood I believe that <laughs> yeah westwood. and I, I was I, I, I felt like I, I knew him so much better after. <laughs> I liked him more in this film. I definitely did. Yeah. Yes, well, it's a more likable character, which helps. Yeah, <laughs> it's a more likable film. Um, yes. Don't have a lot of love for love. A bit of love, some love, loveless, tough yeah. love, mad love. <laughs> I mean, I think, love. I think Gaspar Noé and Nicholas Vinding Refn are kind of starting to occupy similar critical. S- Places because they're both these very stylish filmmakers who are very much provocateurs who alienate people on one extreme or the other. Yeah. But I, I, I think I'm more team Vindig these. Yeah, I think people yeah, are tiring days. of Noé. Oh, I yeah. think that there's a little bit of a sense, and I'm not saying that I necessarily share it, but there not is a little bit of choose, a sense that it's a one-trick pony. And yeah. my, my feeling, um, it's a strange. I mean, maybe it's an obvious point to compare it to because they're both Danish filmmakers but this really reminds me in a way of Antichrist uh, the Lars von Trier film in the sense that it's tra- it just feels like a transitional film it just feels like he's moving from one thing to another thing You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia Heart of a Dog is a 2015 essay film by multimedia artist Laurie Anderson. It's currently screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image until the 6th of November. Anderson provides not only the visuals, but the narration, music, soundscape, and all the other elements that make up this film. It's a work exploring grief and loss, explicitly about the loss of her dog Lola Bella, and implicitly about the loss of her husband Lou Reed. Throughout the film, Anderson also reflects on living in America post 9-11, her relationship to her mother, her interest in Buddhism and her interest in the nature of dreaming. That's all for starters. It's an abstract film and it's also a very personal film. It's both very ambitious and very intimate. And, Alex. and very Laurie Anderson. This is pretty much Alex Catnip. This is your like, kind of thing? This is so my thing. Like, it's like just... There's, at one point, she quotes David Foster Wallace, who I think I've already mentioned once. I just, every love story is a ghost every story. Every love story is a ghost story. It's like, it, this is just... She's just, like, taken a sample of my DNA and decided to build a film <laughs> around it. I adore Laurie Anderson. I love... she. Uh, Stuart Lee, the British comedian, has uh, this wonderful, wonderful video on YouTube where he talks about writing for uh, performance to seem natural. And I think that, that people, with Laurie Anderson, you almost forget how well-crafted her, her work is as a writer because it's so intimate and so casual and so calm, yet it's so beautifully written. Her, her, she's got this driving sort of signature throughout her work of the, of the present tense second person and the intimacy that creates. You are walking and falling at the same time. It's always you 
now and it's just the effect that that has on me is just it's catnip it's just so beautiful where she's talking uh, you know at length about her love of her beautiful dog lola bell r.i.p um spoilers (laughs) spoilers And and I love the artwork. It's gorgeous. Lola it's Bell's amazing artwork and her piano playing. Her, her music is quite, something <laughs> yeah. quite interesting. I, I almost played some of that on the. <laughs> that's on the soundtrack as well. The music the dog Damn. plays. I love yeah. that. I mean, I've have seen actually some of the some of the so the, there's a, a moment at the start where she's talking about nine eleven and going out to the country and and Lola Bell looking up at the sky and and I, I saw Anderson perform that a decade ago, over a decade ago. So a lot of this material is well-worked performance, you know, mm. script that she's, she's you know, this isn't stuff that she's just kind of come up with for the film. And I really like that. I just I just love this. I think it's just such a beautiful love story. And I think that if she was to make a movie about Lou Reed, it would be corny and tacky and a little bit kind of, um, you know, attention well, farming. It would be harder yeah. to warm to the subject as well because, yep. geez, Lou was cranky. <laughs> and whereas a lovable little doggy. If I had a, any disappointment with this film, it's that it didn't manage to quote Groucho Marx and his immortal line about outside of a dog, a book is man's best friend. Inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Maybe you could do the, I love that. Maybe you could do the sequel story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dear Laurie Anderson. <laughs> yeah. About that glaring omission in your otherwise swell tribute to your <laughs> beloved canine friend. Oh, it is a stunning film. It is very moving, but it's actually very funny as well. I mean, that piano sequence just had me rolling. Um, the dog has a Buddhist yeah, trainer. Did, yeah. Was that, was that correct? There was some sort of... The, do, the dog has a lot of therapy, it appeared. Yeah. <laughs> the New York dog, come on. Yeah, so New York. I'm, I'm kind of a bit of a counterpoint. I hate to say this because I so wanted to love this. and um, But I... It's more. It's this. It's more me. It's not Laurie. It's me. Which is I, I. I admire her so much, and but this just. It's the form of this, and I. You know, I can't fault the storytelling or anything. It's just the the actual form of the film. Uh, didn't immerse me. I felt like I was more like at, um, you know, a, a, if it was an experimental short, I would have been more comfortable with it. Or if I was at the screen gallery at Acme and I wandered into one of those little rooms where they had stuff playing on the side, I would have liked it more. Um, but that's, that's literally a form thing. So it's not, I think for people who may not, warm to that feeling of a collage film with um, a very meditative uh, narrative over the top and literally over the top of the whole film will probably not like this or feel as close to this film as someone like Alex has. I, I, I think it's preaching to the converted yeah. in a way. Like yeah. she's got a really strong, dedicated audience and this film appeals to Abs- that audience. Absolutely. Um, I had. I felt there was one bit in it when she talks about not being able to tell her mother that she loved her when she was dying. So instead she was told to buy her flowers and say, I always cared for you. So I just want to say I've always admired Laurie Anderson (laughs) for her artistic integrity and her commitment to her own vision. 
That's really formal. Yeah. The, the dog died, Emma. It's the yeah. dog. Laurie's okay. Yeah. Laurie's well, doing fine. What have you just done? Is that a curse? <laughs> what did you just do? I hope not. It is uh, 2016 and uh, there oh, appears no, to be no, a no. curse I, on this year. I so. can... <laughs> Yeah. I, look, I, I, I mean I'm, her no harm. <laughs> I, I wanted to like this more than I did, but I th- again, I'm going to take it on board as somebody who's not overly familiar with Laurie Anderson or, or her style, and, and I did feel there was too much in the film. There were a lot of passages I, re- I really liked and admired and was quite moved by, and there were a lot of bits that lost me. There was one bit that kind of pissed me off with her. There's one bit where she's talking about the idea of collective memory and dreams and do children who die of SIDS you know, she starts speculating, is that because they're getting overwhelmed with dreams from their ancestors or the collective consciousness? Is that what kills young babies? And that just made me think of, you know... Yeah, I I found that really bristled me. Um, That kind of new-age nonsense for trying to explain something very important and serious. I suddenly just got visions of anti-vaxxers and their pseudo-bullshit science, and I got very (laughs) angry. Um, But maybe, again, this is more about where I was at when I was watching this film. Um, uh, But, look, yeah, a, a lot of admiration, and I think if you're... If you're a fan of hers... If you're a dog lover, I'm not particularly a dog person really um I th- so much hate in this group <laughs> people what's I going think, on no it's, it's not hate it's, it's, it's me trying to articulate why this very good film didn't blow me away personally yeah, that's what i was just a dog yeah it's <laughs> says the cat person yeah exactly if it was about a cat i'll be bawling oh, but, but, is there a grudge remarks quote about cats probably i'm sure there is <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I think I've made it sound like I was more negative towards this film than I was. It was just that, that one thing that really stung, I didn't like. Um, and, and overall, I, my attention waned at points. But then it got me again. I, weirdly enough, when selecting the piece of music to play tonight, I enjoyed listening to the soundtrack far more than I did watching the film. So all, all the musical elements and the spoken word element of it, watching, listening to that detached, I really got into. I have to... I, I think I'd feel the same way. Uh, it's literally the, de- the delivery of it as, as a film it was what I wanted or enjoy as such in that long form but I did like the way I mean she's a great storyteller you know you, you can't dispute that and I did like the way she worked with that sort of minutiae of tiny little things and then big concepts and big ideas and how she juxtaposed them I thought that worked really well and I also liked the final song that Lou Reed song is a killer so it was yeah great. I think the last couple of minutes of this film is emotionally very difficult in a very smart and a very sincere way yeah Yep. I can't remember how it ended, to be honest. It was a while ago. The dog died. Spoilers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, it is Jeez. a lovely ending. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think people should, again, I, you know, I'm not sold on this film. I'm not sold on The Neon Demon, but they're kind of films I think people should make the effort to go and, to go and bill, see. you think? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, double bill this one with the Fort Rock Flats film. I don't know. <laughs> Settle down, <laughs> Dave Dobbin. <laughs> I think these are films that are that films that are absolutely worth people making the effort to see because you know the, these are films as art, even if it's not art that necessarily blows your your, your mind. It, it, it's sort of keeping the form alive. So you know, I'm grateful and respectful of them for that. How do you like that? I think that's no. very strong. I'm going to be a diplomat. Teresa's <laughs> going to glass you. She's ready for a fight. Yeah, yeah. And not... it, it reminded me very much of our Argento films. Yeah. <laughs> Cafe Society is on general release through Entertainment One Film. The Neon Demon is screening at Cinnamon Nova, courtesy of Man Man Entertainment. Heart of a Dog is screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving. 
image courtesy of Transition Films. Keep on listening to Triple R. Coming up next is Jason Moore with Local and or General. You've been listening to Thomas Cordwell, Cerise Howard, Alexandra Hell and Nicholas. And again, welcome to the cave, Emma Westwood. Yay! Welcome, Emma. Good night from us. I feel welcomed. Excellent. (laughs) This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.